Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. this episode, I want to take a minute to thank Wireframe, one of the sponsors of this episode. Wireframe is a podcast about creativity and design for creative professionals produced by industry leader Adobe. It's for UX designers, illustrators, graphic designers, typographers, artists, and activists, or really anyone interested in design and how creativity impacts the world around us. One of my favorite recent episodes explores our hatred of the font Comic Sans, and This episode takes us into an imaginary font party where we hear from different fonts, including Comic Sans, and it's really hilarious and well done. Kudos to host Koivin for this amazing episode. I hope you'll search for Wireframe in your podcast app, and I'll also include a link in my show notes. Many thanks to Wireframe for their support. Hello and welcome to episode eight. Little disclaimer here, I'm at my beach property and I'm by myself and I'm in a closet that I've turned into a recording studio here. And normally when I record at home in my bedroom closet, my wife takes my dog milkshake and steals her away for me so she doesn't scratch on the door or disrupt my recording. And I'm here alone with milkshake this week and she's very confused about why I'm in this closet. And up until a few minutes ago, she was scratching at the door and crying, but she seems to have calmed down. But if she gets up and scratches on the door again, that's what's happening. So anyway, thanks for bearing with me and with Milkshake's anxiety about me being in this closet by myself. Another thing I wanted to mention is that I ended up taking a week off from releasing this episode actually two weeks because I release episodes every two to three weeks. And I had just gotten home from vacation and I realized that the original release date for episode eight was in a few days after I got home. And I hadn't even begun to think about what I was going to record. And I knew I needed to step on it and also get the recording to my editor, Gabe, so he could work his magic before I released it. And immediately... I started to get really anxious and feel overwhelmed because I also came home to a bunch of other work that I had to get to. And then suddenly I realized, wait a second here, Lisa, this is your freaking podcast and you are the boss of it. You can take the week off. And I was sort of like overwhelmed simultaneously with relief because with that thought, my problem was solved and the world did not come crashing down for me or for my sponsors or I hope for any of you. So go figure. I could spend an entire episode talking about giving yourself permission to take the week off, but today I am going to talk about the idea of working outside your comfort zone and committing to something for the long haul. And I'm going to talk about those things in the context of my latest book project, The Illustrated Encyclopedia of the Periodic Table of the Elements, The Powers, Uses, and Histories of Every Atom in the Universe. Now, Before you say, ew, the periodic table and turn off this episode, I hope you will hang in there with me because I'm not actually going to talk about the periodic table. Okay, maybe I will for a second. But the fact that making this book was really a stretch for me and something that took me a very long time. And somehow I got through it. So 
When I announced that I was making this book, most people, people who know me personally and people who don't know me personally but follow me on the interwebs, were all like, the periodic table of the elements? Really? You? And I'm like, yeah, really? And honestly, there is a story behind the book. Like, there's a story behind everything in life. And this story doesn't actually start with a periodic table. It starts with something very different. So let's go down memory lane here. I've never actually told this story publicly, so you're hearing it first. So back in 2015 or early 2016, my literary agent emailed me and said she'd been chatting with the editorial director for children's books at Chronicle. This person was a big deal. So that editor had expressed interest to Stephanie, my agent, in my writing and illustrating a book for 10 to 14 year olds on the First Ladies of the United States. But, you know, something sort of edgy and feminist, something that highlighted interesting human things about all of them. I was a little nervous about this topic because it wouldn't necessarily have been my first choice for a nonfiction book, but I also had really wanted to make a nonfiction book. And when someone of such stature at a publishing house comes to you with an idea and wants you to execute the idea, you more than likely say yes to the challenge. And I did enthusiastically. At the time, we were approaching the next election, the 2016 election, which is all emblazoned in our memories, at least in the United States. And I thought for sure we'd be electing the first first lady to become president, a.k.a. Hillary Clinton. And just as exciting, the book would end with the first first gentleman, who was also a former president. And it was going to be amazing. And I was pretty excited basically because of that. Then two things happened. First, I started researching the first ladies. And I started at the beginning with Martha Washington and moved onward. And the more I delved into them, the more I realized Something that I had sort of feared before I even signed the contract, and that's a big lesson for me, but I feared or I realized that many first ladies were really problematic, mainly that they were racist slave owners. In fact, 12 first ladies or White House hostesses who were essentially, you know, the nieces, daughters and sisters of presidents who took the place of ill or deceased presidential wives were slave owners. And I started to feel really uncomfortable with the idea of writing a book espousing the virtues of these women and others who were problematic for other reasons. And I wanted to tell the truth and wasn't sure how I was going to do that in the context of a children's book and how I was going to negotiate all of that with my publisher. Then the unthinkable happened. Donald Trump was elected president. The whole ending to my book, not to mention democracy as we knew it, was now a thing of the past. It wasn't going to happen. And the thought of ending my book with Melania Trump made me cringe. So luckily, my editor felt the same. And while I was devastated by the results of the election, it was my way out of this book, which I had started to doubt I could make anyway. So we put the project on hold until the new year, and I was tasked with brainstorming new nonfiction book ideas. Fast forward to January and we reconnected. And at the time, I thought I'd just make another book about a subset of amazing women, Olympians, artists, change makers, etc. At the time, empowerment books about women were hitting the shelves at a really fast pace. And I was like, I'm not sure I can compete with all of these guys. So my editor suggested science. Nonfiction books are selling like crazy right now. And science is the hottest topic for teachers and kids, she told me. So I said, okay, I can write a science book. I love science. Then we decided to narrow the area of science. So biology, plants, astronomy, all very cool and fun to illustrate, but these topics were saturated already in the market. 
Then my editor said to me, what about the periodic table? There are no illustrated books on the periodic table. And I was like, that's not a very sexy science topic. But then I thought, okay, I could take on this topic and make it cool. It would be a challenge. I love challenges. And I began to get excited. And I have a history with the periodic table. My dad is a nuclear physicist. And when I was a kid, I wasn't that interested in science, at least in chemistry or physics, which made my PhD in nuclear physics dad a little sad. I remember I would sit at the kitchen table and watch him work after dinner. And he would write these long equations on graph paper with all these symbols that I didn't know what they were, what they meant. Actually, recently, my mom gave me some of his old notebooks filled with long equations written in his exquisite script. And honestly, they're still as beautiful to me now. So as a kid, I knew my dad was a scientist, but these sort of handwritten equations were really all I knew about what my father did in his career. And I had no idea what they meant. At the time, I was intrigued, but science seemed mysterious and complicated to me. Meanwhile, at school, I learned science mostly from textbooks and from my dad helping me with my homework. And while I passed each progressive science class in high school, what I learned was more an exercise in memorization than a true understanding of or interest in the subject. So could I really make a book about a topic that was so foreign to me and, and actually wasn't on my passion list? Right? If you think about, you know, if somebody came to you and said, you could make a book about any topic, you'd probably choose something from your passion list, right? But this wasn't on mine. I was nervous, but I was all in and I embraced the challenge. I spent nearly three years writing and illustrating the Illustrated Encyclopedia of the Elements. And I relied on a team of folks to help edit and fact check it since I am clearly not a scientist. But I think one of the strengths of this book is that it is written by a layperson. I set to work in my research and I approached it from the perspective of somebody who would want to learn like a 12-year-old would want to learn. What is cool about the elements, right? What the heck are they anyway? Why are they so important? It was important to me to pull out the most important facts about the elements and describe and illustrate them in simple, understandable ways and imbue them with humor and drama. For example, did you know that 100,000 atoms are about as thick as one of your strands of hair? And if you make a fist, it contains about 15 septillion atoms. If each atom in your fist were the size of a marble, your fist would be the size of the earth. And did you know that sulfur compounds are responsible for the pungent aroma of skunk spray, rotten eggs, and farts? Or that bananas are radioactive and that magnesium burns at the highest temperature of any of the elements and can't even be extinguished with water? I began to believe that when we introduce kids to the magic of the elements, which by the way, account for every single thing you can touch, smell, or hear, even more new worlds open up to them. At first glance, the periodic table of elements looks like a boring, uninspiring chart, right? We all remember like well, maybe not all of us. Some of you science geeks out there who have been science geeks since you were teenagers probably were inspired by it. But for most of us, you know, we thought of the periodic table as this uninspiring, daunting chart that we had to memorize. And if you look at it simply as a series of boxes, it will be pretty boring. However, if you dive into it, you begin to understand that it's not boring at all, nor is it mysterious or random, as I once thought as a high school chemistry student. It is a chart that is organized by predictable truths about the way everything on Earth is built, starting with tiny atoms and even tinier protons and neutrons and electrons. 
With few exceptions, nearly every element on the periodic table has a purpose. Even some of the most poisonous and dangerous elements have important roles in our everyday lives. Elements keep our bodies working, others are mined from rocks for bridges, buildings, and airplanes, and others kill deadly cancer cells and help us detect or prevent or cure harmful diseases. We would not have several different COVID vaccines if it were not for what we've learned about how the elements work together. And, you know, the really exciting thing is we are constantly finding new ways to use elements in technology and healthcare and new forms of energy to fuel the world. I like to remind kids that if they are a person who likes to ask why or how, they might already be a scientist. And in this book, I had the opportunity to introduce the elements and what they're made of and the roles they play and how they function and some of the best stories about the people who discovered them. And my hope is really that this book will inspire a new generation of scientists and innovators. Friends, I am so excited to introduce you to my latest sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a stock footage company who exists to help you bring all of your stories to life without sacrificing your vision due to time or budget or resources. Every creator who does any kind of video production should have Storyblocks. Storyblocks is changing the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators continue to tell their unique and authentic stories. Their restock program, and I love this, is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. They are also committed to access by making their footage affordable, offering unlimited downloads, a royalty-free demand-driven library, and enterprise licensing. Focused on speed, diversity, and accessibility, I highly recommend checking them out at storyblocks.com slash Congdon. The link is also in my show notes. So that's a little bit about the book, but I also really want to talk today about what I learned from making this book, this book that was so far out of my, my wheelhouse and my comfort zone. I'm always pushing myself into new and different zones, some of them new but familiar and comfortable, some of them marginally comfortable, what I think of as the perfect place to grow, right? Like if you're too inside your comfort zone, it's hard to learn or grow. If you're too far out, it's also too hard to learn or grow. There is this sweet spot. And this book fell into outside what was comfortable, at least at first, but that began to shift. It required so much of me that was new and outside, not just my comfort zone, but my habit, right? Three summers ago, I spent every morning between nine and 12 researching and writing the text for the book. I went into my home office and I set a timer for three hour long blocks. I put my phone away. I used dictation to save my hands from typing too much. It became a ritual, which I eventually leaned into and embraced. But it was at first excruciating, you know, sitting at a desk and reading books about atoms and translating that information, half of which I didn't entirely understand myself, into language kids could understand was a huge leap for me. Sometimes I thought, what the hell am I doing? And I had moments of regret. But generally, for better or for worse, I am somebody who commits to stuff, even when I'm struggling. 
And I say that's for better or for worse, because I do think I could actually do a better job of quitting sometimes. The other day, while I was discussing with my mother, Simone Biles' exit from the Olympic competition, my mom said to me, as if to compare me to Simone, you are not a quitter. And I argued back to my mom that I indeed do quit things and that I thought quitting was often a sign of strength, not weakness. In the case of Biles, I truly believe this. And also, I am not under nearly as much pressure, nor have I ever been as Simone Biles, nor was I suffering or had I ever suffered from you know, the twisties or whatever it was that was, you know, kind of overtaken her, her mind and her spirit. So the comparison was silly. Also, mothers often have binary one-sided views of their children as being all good or all bad in various dimensions. And in my mom's eyes, I'm not a quitter. She thinks of me as somebody who is kind of stealth when it comes to like plodding through stuff that is uncomfortable for me. And generally she's right. I am known for starting sentences with the phrase, the train has left the station, so therefore we must forge onward or some such thing. And in the case of this giant book and encyclopedia, for God's sake, the train had left the station and I was, I was all in. Excruciating and uncomfortable as it was, I was all in. I don't always recommend going out of your comfort zone too far It can be painful to the point where there can be damage. In 2016, after a year of being so far outside my comfort zone, I was suffering from adrenal fatigue, anxiety, burnout. And I spent a whole year after that purposefully only taking projects and speaking engagements that were inside of my comfort zone. I had to take a break from the stress and anxiety that comes with being outside your comfort zone. But in this case, In the case of this big encyclopedia, I took the leap. The good news was I had a fairly long timeline to work on it, and I am decent at managing my time and knowing my limits. So I also decided to hire someone to help me research and write the book. And I found the perfect partner in my sister, Stephanie. My literary agent's name is Stephanie, and my sister's name is Stephanie. I know it's a little confusing. So many amazing Stephanies. And my sister, Stephanie is an amazing writer and researcher and editor. She has her copy editing certification from UC Berkeley. She's amazing and smart and had time to help me. I knew I could not do it alone and I learned quickly I was right. I was, however, in the great position to be able to pay someone to help me and I felt super grateful for that. So Stephanie and I divided the subject matter in the book. We literally divided the 118 elements plus a bunch of other front and back matter for the book into two parts, and we went to work researching and writing our, like, assigned sections. It took months and hours of back and forth and reading each other's bits and meeting in person to review text and research and giving each other feedback on the bits we had written and sending stuff for review by my editor and copy editors and going back and forth and back and forth and my sister patiently fact-checking and digging deeper for me as I worked on other projects at the same time. In the first year of working on the book, something really kind of temporarily traumatic happened for me. The editor who brought me into this project left her position at Chronicle, and I was assigned another editor. And at first, I was literally terrified. Like, part of the reason I took this project is because this person who had so much influence and power at Chronicle was my editor, and she was going to make sure this book was kind of shepherded through its completion and, and properly promoted. And I was really worried that I wouldn't get the same amount of support. And it turns out this was a gift. 
My new editor, Melissa, really championed the book from the moment it was added to her list and got really excited about it. So that ended up working out. But let me tell you, it was a real uh, gut punch when it happened. Anyhow, over time, I began to fall in love with the periodic table. I think this happened because I dedicated so much time to it. And I really leaned into this kind of ritual practice of getting up every day and working on the text. I became attached to the elements, to the fun facts, to the history, to the secret powers. And eventually I was kind of slowly, not entirely outside my comfort zone. I was still not an expert, but I was no longer intimidated. I eventually found that realm where growth happens, right? Like enough was challenging, but enough was familiar that I really started to blossom in my writing, in my ideation around the book. And I hung in there. And I moved from this place of regret and feeling in over my head to feeling a certain command. The text of the book took the longest. We were editing that until the book went to print nearly two and a half years after I began writing it. So most of the time when you write a book, you always write the text first and then you illustrate it second if you're doing both. And I definitely have never edited a book quite as long and as intensely as this book. And part of the reason that was so important is this book is a science book, right? We had to get the facts right. And we hired this guy, Russell, and he helped us with all of the fact checking. And then we had a Chronicle fact checker and my sister did some fact checking. And I'm not entirely sure we got everything exactly right. I mean, who knows? Science is always changing and there are actually different opinions about different things. But we worked really hard to get it as accurate as possible. And that really took the longest. And somewhere in there, it came time for me to make illustrations. So we were confined to a page count. So I couldn't just illustrate everything and, you know, have the whole thing be colorful as I had sort of wanted because there was a lot of text and there was a lot of text we couldn't leave out, right? So I asked the book designer to lay out the book without the illustration so I could see how much room I had to illustrate it. And I told him which elements and infographics I felt warranted a full page of illustration and which would get spots. And so he did that for me. And it was so helpful because then I could just say, okay, I have this much space for this thing. This thing needs more space, so let's move this around. And so I wasn't like working on illustrations that would end up getting cut from the book. I mean, a few of them did, but for the most part, we planned that ahead. And I made this spreadsheet that had every bit of front matter and back matter, which are like basically all the information in the book that preceded the section on all of the elements and all of the infographics information that was dispersed throughout the book. And my sister and I brainstormed what should illustrate each element and we put it in the spreadsheet. And sometimes it was really hard because so many elements are just, well, rocks. And I didn't want an encyclopedia filled with illustrations of rocks. So I had to get creative and I often, you know, had to go outside my comfort zone with the kinds of things I had to render. Not just out of my comfort zone, but out of my interest level. Like, I'm trying to think about like, There's a lot of technical things in the book that I had to illustrate that were kind of boring. But anyway, I had hundreds of illustrations to make. And then when I finished with that, I had committed to hand letter all 118 element names and also the infographic and front and back matter headers and subheaders, along with a complete periodic table and all the symbols for each element. So all of that hand drawn. 
I ended up making myself a hand-lettered alphabet to use where I could, but even so, the lettering phase of the project became really overwhelming in a way, and at the same time, kind of rote and boring. But here's the thing. That rote and boring work is rote and boring because it is in my comfort zone. And there are drawbacks to working inside your comfort zone, right? It's not as stimulating to your brain. But that kind of work, most of the time, unless you have somebody to do it for you, has to be done, right? It's just part of being an illustrator. There are always parts of projects that are tedious and repetitive. And one of the ways I manage my emotions around rote and boring work is to take advantage of it by engaging another part of my brain while I work. So for example, if I am lettering words on a list, I listen to a podcast or an audiobook at the same time. I try to appreciate the downtime that rote or boring work offers me, right? It's, it's like a gift to be able to relax into it. I talk quite a bit about leaning into repetition and boredom in my book, Find Your Artistic Voice, if it's something you're interested in, because there really are many advantages to it. Rote and boring work also makes us appreciate being out of our comfort zones, right? And how stimulating that can be for us. So making this book was at times intellectually challenging and also rote and boring. It was also the longest project I've ever worked on. Writing the book took three years total, two years of writing plus a year of editing and actually rewriting. And the illustrations took me nine months plus another six or so months of revisions. And then there was the back and forth of editing, the layout with the designer, the text, the illustrations, all of it. The book was delayed almost a year because of COVID, which gave us, on the upside, more time to nitpick at it and the facts and get it right. But it also made me feel frustrated. I had been working on it for so long, right? And it's important to note here that over those three years, I was also working on several other books, all of which started and finished after and before this one, right? (laughs) So it's kind of nuts. And I was also working on endless client illustration projects and gallery shows and traveling for book tours and speaking engagements. So I really had to engage those time management and those focus muscles. And in some ways, this book felt like the project that would never end. When I found out that it would be delayed for nearly a year because of COVID, I literally broke down and cried. There were so many instances where I had to take very deep breaths and remind myself to be patient. People who make books know that generally they take a long time. And then there is this other long period of waiting while they're being printed and before they are released, which is also, you know, sometimes you either like can't stop thinking about when the book's going to come out and it seems like forever, or you literally forget about it because you've moved on to new things. And during COVID, many release dates are being pushed back. And so the process can really feel eternal. The publishing industry has been hit really hard by COVID. So let's circle back to the beginning. I committed to something, a book that was someone else's idea about a topic that was not on my passion list and something that took me three years. And I did it. It was finally finished. And last month it was released. And to get there, I did one consistent thing. If I could put into one category and one bucket, the thing I did to get through that three years was I surrendered. I leaned into what finishing the book required of me. I leaned into time management. I leaned into research and writing. I leaned into boredom and monotony. I surrendered to all of that and to the delays. This surrendering was necessary. Making books, even about topics on your passion list, 
can be excruciating. You know, every now and again, you'll get a book assignment or you'll make a book that feels easy. And I've made 10 of them. So I have maybe one that felt that way. And that was Find Your Artistic Voice. That book came to me really easily. And it was actually a kind of a joy at every at every turn. But mostly making books is excruciating. I'm illustrating a children's book for somebody else right now that is so fun, but it's so detailed. And that aspect of it is excruciating for me sometimes because I feel like I'm never going to finish because I'm spending so much time on these very detailed illustrations. You know, it can be tedious. Making books is repetitive. It's anxiety producing. It is a long haul. And as I mentioned, this book is my 10th book. And in many ways, this book didn't feel that much different than the others. Making books and engaging in other long haul projects, if you're not a person who makes books, but maybe you've had some long art or illustration projects or you've prepared for a show for a year, can also be gratifying and grit building and ego softening, something that brings you down to earth and makes you humble. And yet I made a beautiful book, a book that I hope kids will enjoy. And this book is a freaking encyclopedia. I made a freaking encyclopedia. I have to remind myself of that because sometimes I look at the book and all I see are the things that I would change or, you know, the illustrations I don't like or that I think are boring, right? But I made a freaking encyclopedia and it took me three years. And science is so important right now in this time in history, right? And I am so excited, hopefully, to get some kids more excited about science, even the less, quote, sexy science subjects like the periodic table. Will I ever make an encyclopedia again? Hell no. That is one thing I learned also. In fact, right now, I don't want to make another book again for a long time. You know, giving myself permission to take some years off from books is kind of where I'm at right now. But what I do hope is that if you have a kiddo at home between 8 and 14 or younger or older, or if you yourself are a science geek, I hope you will check out the illustrated encyclopedia of the periodic table. I will link to both the book and where to purchase it, including signed copies on my website, and to the, I think, very funny five-minute video I made about the book. I'll link to that in my show notes as well, where you can learn more about the book and see me being goofy behind the camera. Thanks so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. <laughs>